0: I could tell you story after story. Um, obviously, you're probably thinking, Steve is treading water right now. I am. <laughs> We've got some challenges that we have to, um, to overcome. But um, I want to tell you a couple more soul-winning stories that um, have happened here recently. Back in the Aiken meeting, uh, there was a family coming wonderful family out of that family 11 people joined the church from that one family also I got word yesterday that another young lady from another meeting just joined the church three weeks ago we've got a baptism coming up in June for our little church lighthouse church uh, there's a couple that came to a health emphasis, which, is, which we call a uh, supper club. How many of you are familiar with a supper club? Supper clubs are, to me personally, the best way to do health and win souls. We have baptized many people from supper clubs. You know, a lot of people say, well, the health message, it really doesn't work, and this and that and the other. Not true. Not true. Supper clubs, we meet once a month, and uh, we've got a young couple that are being baptized on June the 30th from the supper club. They originally came to a uh, health emphasis that we had called, called a tasting extravaganza. So we start with a tasting extravaganza. We invite the community. People come out, and then we move them into the supper club. And from the Supper Club, we offer in-home Bible studies and small groups. And uh, from there, uh, we invite them into an evangelistic series. And Dan and Jody, like I said, will be baptized. He is a mathematic teacher in a charter school. She's a physical therapist. Um, probably would have never come to an evangelistic series. But because of this wonderful health message that we have, They came to that, showed an interest in spiritual things. They both have a Roman Catholic background, and I've watched God just work miracles in their life. Got another lady that we're about to bring in by profession of faith. She wrote a whole book on the Ten Commandments. Can you believe that? This woman lives uh, out on the peninsula on Lake Norman. Her husband was an executive for Lowe's, and um, she started coming to some Bible studies. Now she looks at the Lighthouse Seventh day Adventist Church as her church, and she will be joining also in June. We also have a small group Bible study every Tuesday night on the book of Daniel. We have eight non-Adventists coming to that, all from the health ministry, and we're moving them right along by God's grace. Folks, it is true that the health message is our right arm, and it does work. People say, well, how do you work with these people that are more affluent the health message? How do you work with millennials? They eat just like you eat. They do, the health message, because they're interested in healthy living. So I want to encourage you to um, go back to your churches and uh, look at your health program and utilize it. Now, you can't get weird on the people. You meet them where they're at. But if you have a system and you systematically work with them it works. You can't just hold a health emphasis and then have nothing else for them to go to. Before you finish one, you connect them to another and then to another, and you do it step by step. I believe our speaker is ready to go. Yes. I met you many years ago. You don't remember me, but I was a young pup then. So was I. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It was at the, I believe it was at a Michigan camp meeting or minister's meeting you know I'm in my 60s now and everything gets a little fuzzy but uh, glad to have you here everyone knows who you are this is the third morning that you have spoken let's have prayer together folks and get started loving heavenly father we thank you for your marvelous love and you have granted us this day of life and we thank you as Elder Moore presents to us this morning, dear Lord, I pray that our hearts will be stirred and that we will sense the presence of your Holy Spirit. We give all honor and glory and praise to you. In your Son's precious name, we thank you. Amen.
1: Good morning. How many people here got a good night's sleep? At least seven or eight hours. Let me see your hands. Now, let me see the hands of those who didn't get seven or eight hours. Several. All right. Well, I'm going to pray that the Lord will keep everybody awake. Uh, You know, I talked to you yesterday about my anxiety. Those of you who are here remember that. And it really was hard for me to uh, get a good eight hours of sleep. Often it was only four or five. Or maybe six, if I was lucky. But I just said, Lord, help me come to the place where I sleep better. And you know what's happened. Most nights, I get seven to eight hours of sleep. God, is, God will guide you, folks. He will guide you into whatever it is you need. Ask him, and don't get impatient and expect immediate results. God will guide you. All right. Now, let's see. We, it's in play mode, so we need my uh, screen up. Jesus' mission. We're going to talk about Jesus today and what he did for us. Uh, The plan of salvation in the great controversy includes two parts, our part and God's part or Jesus' part. Uh, Probably should have done Jesus' part yesterday and our part today, but we did it the other way around. Yesterday we talked about the plan of salvation, our part, today we're going to talk about what Jesus did in order to make it possible for us to be saved. Now, the first question I'm going to deal with, did Jesus come with a pre-fall or a post-fall nature? I'm bringing that up simply because it's been a point, there's been several issues, point of controversy, in the Adventist church for the past 50, 60, 70 years. Some people say, oh, Jesus came with a pre-fall nature. Others say, oh, he came with a post-fall nature. My answer to that question is yes. There are some ways in which he came with a pre-fall nature, he had to. Other ways in which he came with a post-fall nature, he had to. So let's talk about it. Uh, Hebrews 2, verses 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels that Jesus helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way and so those who argue for a post fall nature say well jesus had to be meant to be made like us in every single way and therefore uh, he had to have a post fall nature well that's true but there are some limits to that as I said there's a significant debate in Adventism over this how much in every way well the Bible says Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is desperately wicked The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Do you think that Jesus came with a heart that was deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? I don't think so. That's us. Our hearts. Jesus did not have a heart that was deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. (coughs) So, did Jesus come with Adam's nature before the fall or with our nature after the fall? Let's look at the pre fall evidence. Ellen White made a very significant statement. Christ came to the earth taking humanity and standing as man's representative to show in the controversy with Satan that man, as God created him, man, as God created him, that's pre fall. Connected with the Father and the Son could obey every divine requirement. Now what does connected with the Father and the Son mean? It means to be converted. Do you think that when Jesus came into this world he had to be converted before he could become our Savior? No. How did Jesus' nature was pre-fall, he came connected with the Father. He came born again. What we receive at the new birth, he had from the time he was conceived. Evidence for the post-fall nature. It would have been an almost infinite humiliation for the Son of God to take man's nature even when Adam stood in his innocence in Eden. But Jesus accepted humanity when the race had been weakened by 4,000 years of sin. Like every child of Adam, he accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity, What these results were is shown in the history of his earthly ancestry. He came with such a heredity to share our sorrows and temptations and to give us an example of a sinless life, desire of ages 49. So Jesus inherited physically what we inherit. In other words, he came with a nature that had degenerated after 4,000 years from the fall. He inherited our physical nature, but he inherited the nature of us after we are born again. He was converted from the moment of his birth. Now, how Jesus' nature was post-fall? He came with our physical heredity that was weakened by 4,000 years of sin. Ellen White made this comment Be careful, exceedingly careful, as to how you dwell upon the human nature of Christ. Do not set him before the people as a man with the propensities of sin. This is a comment from the Baker letter, a letter that Ellen White wrote while she was in Australia to an Adventist minister in New Zealand. And it's most, one of the most specific statements about how Jesus came into the world and she says do not set him before the people as a man with a propensity to sin some people in the who insist on a total post fall nature have a hard time with that statement because they think that somehow Jesus came with propensities to sin Owen White said he didn't and I've read some pretty fancy arguments trying to get around this statement And they say, for example, well, she only made that statement to one man at one time. I don't care. She made the statement. And furthermore, she made a statement to a man who was insisting on Jesus coming with a totally post-fall nature. So people today who still insist on a totally post-fall nature need to take this statement seriously. Never in any way leave the slightest impression upon human minds that a taint or an inclination to corruption rested upon Christ. That's pretty plain. Let every human being be warned from the ground of making Christ altogether human, such a one as ourselves, for it cannot be. And I believe that is also from the Baker letter, but I'm not sure. Now a comment by a total post-fall advocate. Here is a total post-fall advocate statement. If Jesus' life is to have any meaning as an example for us, then it is crucial that he inherit just what we inherit. No, not just everything we inherit. Please note, if Jesus had come just like every one of us, including every aspect of our sinful condition, then the Savior would have needed a Savior. Well, wait a minute. How could he be a Savior? If he came to start, to start with, he needed a Savior. So we have to understand that there are some ways in which Jesus did not come the way fully the way we are because when we're born, we need a Savior, and when he was born, he did not need a Savior. So Jesus' nature, pre or post-fall, as I said earlier, yes. It's both. There are ways in which he came with as Adam before the fall. There's ways in which he came with our nature after the fall. As I said before, did Jesus inherit a sinful nature? Some people say yes, because he had to be made like his brothers in every way. My response is, please define what you mean by sinful nature. This is a little different from what we've been discussing earlier, but did Jesus inherit a sinful nature? And some people say, yes, Jesus inherited a sinful nature because he had to be made like his brothers in every way. And my response is, please define what you mean by sinful nature. Would somebody tell me what what a sinful nature consists of? Really, you'd have to break that down into some specific points of definition before I could tell you for sure that Jesus had a sinful nature. Then I could perhaps say, well, in this way Jesus had a sinful nature and in this way he didn't. But to just simply say Jesus came with a sinful nature doesn't really tell us much because we don't know what a sinful nature consists of and I haven't found anybody yet that could define exactly what we mean by sinful nature. So let's be careful when we say Jesus came, had to come with a sinful nature because Uh, We don't really know exactly what a sinful nature consists of. If I can tell you, if you can tell me what a sinful nature consists of, I might be able to say, yes, it consists of this part, but not of that part. What about sinful propensities? Again, some people say, well, Jesus had propensities to sin. Again, please define what you mean by sinful propensities. And the interesting thing is you can go to various different dictionaries and find various different definitions of the word propensities. Ellen White said, we, we, you and I, need not retain one sinful propensity. Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 943. In other words, we come with sinful propensities, but we can overcome them. You know, it's a great encouragement to me to note that when I have certain tendencies like I told you yesterday my great tendency is not toward anger that doesn't mean I can't get angry because there are times when I have and I've lost my temper and flown off of it but most of the time I don't run around feeling angry like the lady that I shared with you yesterday the African lady who was constantly angry and getting and blowing up everybody at everybody and she explained how she overcame that her anger was a sinful propensity my sinful propensity tends to be fear and shame and the fear and shame propensity leads us to do what the one talent man did oh I buried your talent in the ground because I was afraid so fear tends to cause us not to do what we ought to do that was that's one of my sinful propensities certainly not the only one folks but Ellen White said not for one moment was there in Christ an evil propensity Please don't try to get around that by f- fanciful explanations. Not for one moment was there in Christ an evil propensity. That settles it for me. Now let's talk about Jesus' spiritual maturity. The child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. That's from Luke chapter 2, verse 40. Jesus was born, like every other baby, immature. He needed parents who could raise him in the proper way. And God chose very carefully who he, uh, who he uh, had as his parents. God chose Mary as his mother. God chose Joseph as his earthly father. He didn't choose people that would have turned Jesus in the wrong way the child grew and became strong in other words he developed his character as he went along Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man at a very early age Ellen White says Jesus had begun to act for himself in the formation of his character so Jesus had to form his character as a child just like every other child he didn't grow with a full-blown mature character now here's a question how did jesus know who he was how did jesus know who he claimed to be he said i am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me will live even though he dies jesus was stating by this statement jesus was saying i can resurrect you from the dead whoa that's only the prerogative of God of divinity and Jesus said I am the resurrection and the life I can raise you to life I'm divine and then when he claimed to have divinity the uh, he said I tell you the truth Jesus answered before Abraham was born I am do you remember what God said to Moses in the wilderness uh, at the burning bush? I am. Moses said, well, I'm, I'll go to the children of Israel for you, for you, but who shall I tell them you are? And he said, tell them that I am. I am is the basis of the Hebrew word Yahweh, which we translate as Jehovah, which is God in the highest sense. So God told Moses, that he was God, Jehovah, God in the highest sense, Jehovah. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before Jesus was born, I am, and at this they, the Pharisees, picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because claiming to be God was blasphemy, and blasphemy was punishable by Hebrew law, by Levitical law, blasphemy was punished by stoning to death. So they understood very well what Jesus was saying, claiming to be God in the highest sense. Now, my question to you is how did Jesus know that? How did Jesus know who he really was, God united in human flesh? Now, it's possible that God or an angel approached Jesus and gave him some revelation. But the Bible doesn't confirm that for us. So how did Jesus know who he really was, God in human flesh? Because when I grew up, I didn't have any such idea about myself. And I trust that you didn't either. How he knew this? Well, first of all, when the angel came to Mary to tell her that she would have a son... The angel said, you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. That is a specific statement that her son would be the Messiah. And his kingdom would never end means that he would be God because God cannot die his kingdom Only God's kingdom can never end because God himself doesn't die. <coughs> now, how did Jesus know he was to die for our sins? The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus knew that he was to be the Son of God Most High because of what the angel told Mary. And he knew that part of his mission on earth was to save his people from their sins as the Savior. And I can assure you, brothers and sisters, that Joseph and Mary told Jesus about these two appearances that the angels gave them. So, I don't know whether they told him at the age of five or seven or eight or ten, but he knew because of what Joseph and Mary would have told him. And then, Jesus was also a careful student of the Bible. And once he realized that he was to be the Messiah, I'm sure that he studied carefully the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, and here's one. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Think of that. Jesus, as a young man, would realize that somehow, in some way, God would put upon him the sins of the world. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus would have understood that he was to bear the sins of the world. What a heavy burden to lay on a young man. I'm glad God never laid that kind of a mission onto me. Because I couldn't do it. Obviously, because I'm a sinful human being, so are you. uh, Now this is a quote from Ellen White uh, about Jesus first time he visited the temple at the age of 12 for the first time the child Jesus looked upon the temple he saw the white robed priests performing their solemn ministry he beheld the bleeding victim upon the altar of sacrifice with the worshippers he bowed in prayer while the cloud of incense ascended before God he witnessed the impressive rites of the paschal service day by day he saw their meaning more clearly every act seemed to be bound up with his own life. Notice that. Every act seemed to be bound up with his life. He began to understand in a deeper way who he was and what his mission was. New impulses were awakening within him. Silent and absorbed, he seemed to be studying out a great problem the mystery of his mission was opening to the Savior. At the age of 12, he began really to understand his mission. Even then, he didn't fully understand it because he had another 18 years before he would begin his ministry, his public ministry, and during that whole time, he was studying more and more about his mission. So that when he actually came to the time when he began his mission, he had a full understanding of who he was now Satan made a tremendous effort to defeat Satan because listen folks we're dealing with a great controversy here Satan was jealous of Michael Christ in heaven before he fell he rebelled against Michael in heaven and was cast to this earth he took dominion over this earth and he wanted to keep that dominion forever When Jesus entered this world, Michael knew exactly who he was. Nobody else did. Well, Mary understood. Joseph understood something about it. I can assure you that that Satan was a very avid student of Scripture, and he knew exactly who Jesus was, and he was determined to eliminate him. That is the reason for the slaying of all the baby boys in Bethlehem from the age of two years and younger so Satan did everything in his mind that he could possibly do to deter Jesus from accomplishing his mission because if Jesus accomplished his mission Satan was done with aren't you glad that Jesus accomplished his mission Satan's ambition was to maintain his control over the world He gained that control from Adam and Eve when he got them to sin, and he took over their dominion. I think our friend uh, Ty Gibson has been talking about that in his evening sermons. There's certainly a relationship between what Ty and I are talking about. Perhaps if you attend both of our meetings, you understand that. And yet we're each talking about things in a different way. Satan's ambition was to maintain his control over the world, and eventually Satan wanted to gain control not just of this world but of the entire universe. You say, Wow, how could he expect that? Well, listen to this from Ellen White, Desire of Ages. With intense interest, the unfallen worlds watched to see Jehovah arise and sweep away the inhabitants of the earth. They expected that God would just simply destroy this planet. But God in his love didn't do that. He loved us and wanted to save us, and there was a way for him to do that. Jesus had to pay the price. But there was a way for him to to deliver us. The angels were waiting for God to destroy our earth and kill everybody on it, and if God should do this, Satan was ready to carry out his plan to secure to himself the allegiance of heavenly beings. He was ready to cast blame upon God and to spread his rebellion to the worlds above. But instead of destroying the world, God has sent his son to save it. Satan wanted ultimately to take control of the entire universe. He wanted to cast blame upon God and spread his rebellion to the world's above. That means Satan wanted to take control of the entire universe. Jesus is all that stood in the way. Instead of destroying the world, God sent his son to save it. Satan failed to defeat Jesus with his temptations in the wilderness. Satan failed to defeat Jesus throughout his three and a half years of ministry. You know the story of the temptation in the wilderness. Satan failed. Aren't you glad? And he continued to pursue Jesus at every step of the way throughout his three and a half years of earthly ministry. He was determined to achieve his defeat of Jesus in the final conflict, in their final conflict. The final conflict between Satan and Christ came, it began in Gethsemane. Gethsemane, Jesus' trial and his crucifixion was the final conflict between Satan and Christ and and, uh, and Christ. And J- Satan had failed at every step to defeat Jesus, failed to get him to yield to sin and temptation, and he was determined when Gethsemane, the trial and the crucifixion came, I have to defeat Jesus Christ I have to defeat Michael so let's talk about it what Jesus death involved dying the same death that unrepentant sinners will die Jesus didn't die the same death that you and I as converted Christians will die someday if the Lord doesn't come I'm 81 and the the older I get the more I realize I probably won't live to see Jesus come I'd love to, but I'm not sure at 81 that I'll have the uh, stamina to go through that difficult period. That's up to God. I leave it with Him. But Jesus died the death of unrepentant sinners. How do unrepentant sinners die? They die unconverted. They die without the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. That's why they have to be destroyed. That is the death that Jesus died without the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. He was born with the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. Throughout his 33 and a half years, he had the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. He was converted. But when he died, beginning Gethsemane, God withdrew his presence from Jesus' life. Does that sound strange to you? Jesus died totally separated from God without the presence of the Holy Spirit in his mind and heart. If that sounds strange to you, Jesus was born converted with the Holy Spirit in his mind and heart. He lost that connection during his final 18 hours. Does that sound strange to you? Does that sound heretical? Check the evidence. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think there's profound meaning in those words. God had departed from his son. He had removed the Holy Spirit's presence from Jesus' life. In Gethsemane, Ellen White said, and here are several statements that I want to share with you by Ellen White that make it very clear that God pulled himself away from Jesus starting in Gethsemane. These quotes that I'm sharing with you are all from Ellen White's chapter on Gethsemane. Christ felt his unity with his Father broken up. Jesus seemed to be shut out from the light of God's sustaining presence. He felt that by sin he was being separated from his father. You see, God was beginning to lay on Jesus the sins of the world. And God cannot tolerate sin. Jesus became guilty for your sins and mine and everybody else's. And therefore, God could not leave his presence in Jesus' heart. Jesus seemed to be shut out from the light of God's sustaining presence. He felt that by sin he was being separated from his Father. Christ's soul was filled with dread of separation from God. Could mortals have viewed the amazement of the angel host as in silent grief they watched the Father separating his beams of light, love, and glory from his beloved Son? They would better understand how offensive in his sight his sin. You and I need to understand the same lesson, how offensive sin is in our lives to a holy God. Jesus' final battle with Satan. This is Satan's last chance to defeat him. Now the tempter had come for the last fearful struggle. For this he had been preparing during the three years of Christ's ministry. Everything was at stake with him this is his last chance but if Christ could be overcome the earth would become Satan's kingdom and the human race would be forever in his power in Gethsemane Jesus had a profound decision to make he could have returned to his father at that point he could have returned to his father And said, let the human race take care of themselves. I'm going home to my father. Well, I got myself in a little trouble here trying to get this sweater off (laughs) around the... Okay. Hang on just a minute. It'll happen. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. Can you help me connect this to the... belt? getting a little warm up here in these lights and talking, you know. This is the great controversy at its most intense. In its hardest feature, this is Gethsemane, in its hardest features, Satan pressed the situation upon the Redeemer. The people who claim to be above others in temporal and spiritual advantages have rejected you. They are seeking to destroy you, the foundation, the center, and seal of the promises to them as a peculiar people. So notice, Satan knew very well who Jesus was. And he's confronting Jesus with that. He's saying the people that are supposed to be yours and that you're coming to die for have rejected you. Why are you going to go to guess, why are you going to go to the cross for them? That's a temptation to Jesus to give up. The people don't care. Why should I die for? One of your own disciples who has listened to your instruction and has been among the foremost in church activities will betray you. One of your most zealous followers will deny you. A temptation that Satan pressed as hard as he could upon Jesus' mind and heart. All will forsake you, Christ's whole being abhorred the thought. While easy? Jesus just felt total revulsion at the thought of his disciples and his nation rejecting him. And the temptation was powerful to say, I'm going back to my father, give up. Satan told Jesus that if he became the surety for a sinful world, the separation between him and the Father would be eternal. So now Satan is saying, if you go to the cross, then you will never see heaven again. You will never go to be with your Father again. That was a lie, but I mean, Satan is the master of lies. He would be identified with Satan's kingdom and would never more be one with God. That's what Satan tried to get Jesus to believe. What has Jesus promise to us? Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Some people have asked me when I make my presentations, especially on end-time events and the close of probation and the final time of trouble, I've had two or three people ask me over the years, will we lose the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives during the time of trouble after the close of probation? And the answer is no. And the evidence is very simple. Jesus did not say, Lo, I will be with you until the close of probation. Jesus said, I will be with you until the end of the age or the end of the world. I will be with you till my second coming. Brothers and sisters, there was a time in Jesus' life when his father was not with him. Jesus had no such promise as he's given to you and me. What Jesus experienced in Gethsemane. Now I want to share with you some statements that I have found on the internet about what what would what is the physical nature of Christ's suffering in Gethsemane during his trial? and on the cross. Uh, these statements are hard to read, but I want you to understand what it is that Jesus went through. This is not Ellen White. This is not Bible. This is a doctor a physician who understood the nature of Christ's suffering because he studied it carefully and he compared it with what he knew about the physical reasons. For instance, we're going to be look right now at why did Jesus sweat blood? Some people say, "Well, that's strange, sweating blood." Listen to this: there is a rare condition, very rare, called hematodrosis. Hematid, Pardon me for hematodrosis. That may occur in cases of extreme. Anxiety caused by fear. There is one time in Jesus' life when he experienced extreme anxiety, and that was in Gethsemane. It manifests itself as sweat that contains blood or blood pigments. Anxiety due to intense fear affects the autonomic nervous system. Fear triggers the amygdala, which is the brain's fear center we know the reaction as the fight-or-flight response the response results in the following extreme sweating accelerated heart rate vasoconstriction of the blood vessels increased blood pressure diversion of blood from non-essential areas in order to increase blood to the brain and muscles of the arms and legs skin pallor, and decreased function of the digestive system, which may result in vomiting and abdominal cramps. This is what Jesus went through in Gethsemane, folks. Jesus' fight-or-flight response lasted several hours as he prayed alone while his apostles slept nearby. He would have been completely exhausted and dehydrated because of sweating and vomiting. That's what Jesus went through in Gethsemane. But wait till you see what he went through at his trial before the Sanhedrin. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other things, insult many other insulting things to him. One of Satan's efforts to get Jesus to give up was to have the people around him insult him. How many of you like to be insulted? you know what my tendency is when I get insulted? My sense of justice arises. My anger is aroused and I feel like lashing out. I'm sure Jesus experienced that feeling of lashing out this anger, but he controlled it and did not. Then some began to spit at him. They struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. One of Satan's fierce temptations. If we beat you up hard enough, maybe you'll lash out in anger. That will be sinful, and you will lose the great controversy, and I will maintain control of the world. That's what's going on right here. The crown of thorns. There is a nerve that runs through the faith eyes, nose, mouth, and jaws. Irritation of this nerve would have caused a condition called trigeminal neuralgia. It causes severe facial pain. Stabbing pain radiates around the eyes, over the forehead, the upper lip, nose, cheek, the side of the tongue, and the lower lip. Spasmodic episodes of stabbing, lancating, and explosive pain are often more agonizing during times of fatigue or tension. Do you think Jesus was in fatigue at this point? Tension? Yes. It is said to be the worst pain that a human can experience. We don't understand what, and, uh, what Jesus went through when they pressed that crown of thorns on his head. That's what he went through. Satan was using every tool at his command today to make Jesus either lash out in anger or give up and come down from the cross. This was all-out war. It was the conflict between good and evil. It was the epitome of the great controversy. The great controversy was in its last, really, final conflict. And Jesus did not have the presence of the Holy Spirit with him to go through it. The fate of the human race hung in the balance. Now let's talk about Jesus' crucifixion. I could have shared with you some things about Jesus flogging. Did you know that Jesus was flogged twice? When you read the scripture evidence, it's very obvious that Jesus was flogged twice. The first time was Pilate flogging, having Jesus flogged, thinking, well, maybe that'll be enough to satisfy the Jewish rulers. It wasn't. So then when he finally condemned him to death, he had to flog him 40 times. The first time was 39, uh, 40 minus 1. The second time was 40. Many people died of this flogging before the first one is even over with. Jesus endured it twice. The priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. Do you think they would have? No. No. By the time he arrived at Calvary, Jesus was in the exquisite pain, struggling to breathe, and suffering from blood and fluid loss. One of the executioners threw him to the ground and then made him lie on his back. One of the other executioners pressed down his chest, while the third soldier stretched his arms one at a time across a patabulum, that is a horizontal piece of the cross, and nailed down his hands. The pain from the nails would have been like having hot pokers driven through his hands, causing bolts of radiating pain up his arm. He would have screamed out in agony. The process was was repeated for the other hand, offering no relief from the agonizing pain. Then two members of the execution squad likely manned the ends of the cross piece, while a third member grasped Jesus around the waist, getting him to his feet. And Jesus nailed to this... and they're getting up to his feet and his hands are shaking in that, those nails. Can you imagine the pain? The The process was repeated for the other hand offering no relief from the agonizing pain. They backed him up to the upright onto a platform device and then two men lifted him by the legs and inserted the cross piece into a mortise on the upright. Again, Jesus would likely have screamed out in agony after each foot was nailed. The median nerve runs through the theater furrow, that is, just below the wrist, where the nail was. A nail through this area would cause a burning, searing pain so severe that the slightest touch or movement or gentle breeze would have have felt agonizing. The Romans bent the legs of their victims at the knees and then placed their feet flush against the cross. Then they hammered one nail through the top of each foot, severing the plantar nerves. The pain would have been similar to the pain caused by the palm injuries. In addition, the effect of bending the knees to align the feet against the stipes, stipe, that's the vertical part of the cross, would cause cramping and numbness in the calves and thighs. This would force Jesus to arch his back in an attempt, in an attempt to straighten his legs and alleviate the cramping. Then on the cross, they lifted Jesus and placed it uh, into the hole Ellen White says that when they dropped Jesus into that hole, which, of course, would have put force on his arms and le- on his hands and legs and feet, it was an intense pain. As Jesus slowly sagged down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating pe- fiery pain shot along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists were putting pressure on the median nerves, large nerve trunks which traversed the mid-wrist and hand. As he pushed himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he put his full weight on the nails through his feet. Again, there was searing agony as the nail tore through the nerve between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurred. As the arms fatigued, great waves of cramps swept over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps came the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by the arms, the pectoral muscles, the large muscles of the chest, were paralyzed. And the intercostal muscles, the small muscles between the ribs, were unable to act. Air could be drawn into the lungs, but could not be exhaled. Jesus fought to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, the carbon monoxide level increased in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subsided. As the end approached, the loss of tissue fluids had reached a critical level. The the compressed heart was struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood to the tissues, and the tortured lungs were making a frantic effort to inhale small grass and grass of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues sent their flood of stimuli to the brain. The wrath of God against sin, this is now Ellen White, the wrath of God against sin, the terrible manifestations of his displeasure because of iniquity, filled the soul of his son with consternation. So great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. Now you just read what the physical pain was like. Ellen White says... The separation from his father was such a great agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. I have a hard time understanding that, but it's true. Had Jesus in one particular yielded to Satan to escape the terrible torture, the enemy of God and man would have triumphed. Can you imagine the determination that Jesus had to go through He knew that the fate of the world and the universe hung on his going through. And he was determined to go through with it. Praise God he did. This was all out war the conflict between good and evil, the great controversy. Jesus had three options. Number one, he could lash out in anger and lose the war. He could come down from the cross, go back to his father, and lose the war. Or he could stay on the cross and win the war. You know which one he chose. Jesus stayed on the cross and won the war for you and me. And actually, he won the war for the whole universe. He won the war for you and me and for the universe. Now, here's something very critical to understand. Jesus understood what was going on. During this whole time of his Gethsemane, his trial, and the cross, Jesus was the only one who understood that the fate of the world and the fate of the human race lay in his hands. Nobody else understood. I mean, to the to the to the the hoi polloi that was standing around, even the Jewish leaders, they all just thought that this was a poor man who got himself crosswise with the Jewish leaders. He got him crosswise with the Roman government, and they put him on a cross and executed him in a horribly painful way. But that's all that was going on. The average persons standing around that cross, that's all they thought was happening. Even the disciples thought that Jesus had somehow, they thought he was the Messiah, and here he gets himself crucified. They did not understand what was going on. Nobody in that crowd understood what was going on except Jesus. Jesus understood that he was in a great con- uh, a conflict with Satan over the, over the great controversy. Nobody else knew that. I propose to you, brothers and sisters, and we'll be talking some more about this tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about the final conflict. I propose to you that when we go through the final conflict, especially, well, both before and after the close of probation, we are going to have to understand what's going on in our lives. We are involved in a conflict with Satan. And... uh, The world is going to think of us just as poor mortals that got crosswise with the world's governments. No. This is a conflict between good and evil, and we're enduring the last part of it, and we have to endure it successfully on God's side. So you and I are going to have to have the same understanding of what's going on that nobody else does, but we need to understand it as we're going through the final conflict, what's really going on. It's part of the great controversy. Now let's talk about Jesus' resurrection for a few moments. Hosts of evil angels, this is uh, after Jesus is in the tomb. Hosts of evil angels were gathered about the place. Satan dared to hope that he, the Savior, would not take up his life again. He claimed the Lord's body. Satan claimed the Lord's body and set his guard above, above the tomb, seeking to hold Christ a prisoner are of ages a heavenly host surrounded the sepulcher so you see Satan was around that sepulcher with his angels but a heavenly host also surrounded the sepulcher angels that excel in strength were guarding the tomb and waiting to welcome the prince of life and which group do you think was standing closest to the tomb God's angels And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven. The earth trembled at his approach. The hosts of darkness flee, and the soldiers see him removing the stone as he would a pebble, and hear him cry, Son of God, come forth, thy Father calls thee. They see Jesus come forth from the grave, and hear him proclaim over the rent sepulcher, I am the resurrection and the life. As he comes forth in majesty and glory, the angel hosts bow low in adoration before the Redeemer, and welcome him with songs of praise. Now have come, the, this is from Revelation. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Amen. Jesus won. Praise the Lord. Jesus won. Father in heaven, Jesus endured horrible suffering during his trial, the crown of thorns, the beatings with 39 lashes and then 40 on his back, the cross, the ridicule, the shame. Satan piled all of this onto our Redeemer in his intense effort to get Jesus to either lash out in anger or give up and go back to his father. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that Jesus understood what was going on and endured to the very end and won the conflict. At this point, the conflict was settled. Satan knew he had lost the battle. There's still 2,000 more years to go of the conflict. And... uh, we are faced with going through the final part of this battle before Jesus comes. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But thank you, Father, that Jesus won. In his precious name, Amen.